Amen. Well, thank y'all for praying with me. If you have a Bible, we're actually going to open up to Romans 12. The bulk of our study will be in chapter 15, but we are going to open back up to Romans 12 tonight because that's where we began this section, this theme a few weeks ago. And I want to kind of reread that opening uh, text uh, to this uh, theme in this section uh, before we continue on and really conclude that conversation tonight. Uh, We'll also be turning to Matthew chapter 5 in a little while, if you want to put a bookmark there, uh, Matthew 5 and John 17. Uh, uh, Normally we put some verses on the screen, but these are passages that I would love for you to see with your own eyes in your own Bibles, Uh, maybe highlight a few verses uh, along the way. Uh, So we'll be turning back to Matthew 5 and John 17 uh, briefly as we uh, go through the message tonight, and then we'll end up back in Romans. Uh, But uh, a few weeks ago, We began uh, 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 the final section of Romans, which uh, begins in Romans 12 and runs through Romans 15. Now, there's more to Romans uh, after this passage we're going to read tonight. Uh, It's more of an epilogue. So if you wonder, hey, well, what about the rest of of the chapter and and the next chapter? Uh, We're going to study those those verses and those passages. But again, they're more of an epilogue. It's more of a postscript. It's more of Paul kind of just tying up loose ends and giving some shout outs to some people that he's thankful for. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about those verses and, and those passages, um, but uh, just kind of drawing a, a, a conclusion to the theme uh, that we began with in chapter 12. And that theme, of course, is sanctification. Sanctification, we have been breaking down Romans into different sections. We began with a conversation about condemnation, about how sin condemns us before God. And in and of ourselves, we are condemned, but we come to Jesus who justifies us. And justification was the theme of really the the middle portion of Romans, chapter three through chapter eight. And then there's that that, that awesome chapter, chapter eight really is all about unification, how we are justified by Christ, but in Christ we find that unity with God, that connection with God. uh, And we spotlighted that uh, for a couple of weeks. And kind of took a detour, Romans 9 through 11 are, are kind of a, uh, an appendix, uh, appendix that kind of give us some inside information about how salvation works and, and what God's up to behind the scenes. But then the, the, the greater narrative picked back up in chapter 12 with uh, what I believe is uh, an insight about sanctification. Uh, and really what we've learned so far and what we're going to talk about again tonight is that sanctification um, is really a transformation. So when you hear sanctification, that's a Bible word, that's a church word, that's a big word. Maybe you think, what does that mean? I've heard about it before. I've, been, I've heard sermons on it. I've heard, read you know, studies about it. But what is, what is a word that we use more often that is kind of you know, uh, not replaceable or, or, or kind of a substitute for that word? So if you want a, a, a word that I think we're all a little bit more familiar with, transformation is a good word, as in when we're sanctified in Christ, we are being transformed by the power of God and in the body or in, in, in Christ and in uh, a relationship with him. And, and that isn't a word that I came up with or anybody came up with. It, it's a word it's from the Bible um, and it's a word from Romans 12. Uh, so here with me again, Romans 12, 1 and 2, at how Paul opened up this section And you'll hear that word uh, transformation or that word transformed. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, 
which is your reasonable service. So you've been justified, you've been united with God in Christ, you have been made one with Christ, you are in a relationship with God. So the next step, the logical next step, the reasonable next step for you to take as a Christian that, just, that wants to grow in Christ and wants to become closer to God is to present your body a living sacrifice. Day in and day out, you are bringing yourself to God, saying, what is next for me? Or where do you want me to go? Now that I believe, what do I do with what I believe? Which should be every Christian's uh, you know, question and every Christian's desire. Give, having received this great gift, having been given the mercy of God, what do I do with it? Paul says, bring your body to Christ. Or bring your body before the Lord. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So if you want to really, if you want to realize what God's will is for your life, if you want to prove or in, and live out God's will for your life as a Christian, as a Christian, present your life to Christ, present your body to God every single day and be transformed by what he brings to you and by what he wants to do in you. So that was the introduction to this study a few weeks ago. Tonight, we're gonna read and hear about God's desire for every mature believer to truly walk in the shoes of Christ and follow the path that Christ has paved. Keywords, walk and follow, uh, because that's what sanctification is all about. That's that we might be transformed into the full image of, of Christ. Now, remember back in Romans, we talked about how in Adam, we all died. In Adam, we became sinners. But in Christ, we are made alive again. In Christ, we are born again. In Christ, we are brought back and we are restored and resurrected. And uh, God made us in his image, yet Adam, when he fell, we fell with him. The human race fell with him and the image of God was tainted and scarred and marred. But being saved brings us back to the image that God always desired us to live out our lives in, that image that he originally designed us with. And, and, and 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says, having been saved, all of us with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image. So when you see a word in the Bible, it's important to pay attention to when you see that word other places, because usually if Paul uses a word, uh, like, like a big word like transform, transformation, if he uses it elsewhere, it's probably connected to that same theme. So here in 2 Corinthians, we see that word transform, which again is that idea of being changed from the inside out. And what are we being transformed into or transformed unto? We are being transformed into the image of Jesus. So if you piece all of what we've learned together in Romans, uh, it, it begins to make sense. Romans 3 through 8, uh, we, we hear the technical theological underpinnings of what it means to be saved, how we get saved, why we need to be saved. And, and it points us to this ideal that Christ lived out and that we might live out through him. And now in this last section of Romans, we have been hearing about how we might realize this image of Christ in our own selves, in our own lives. And, and perhaps, perhaps if you've been here for all of this, uh, perhaps our discussion about sanctification has been a little bit different than what you might ex have expected or maybe what you've heard before. Uh, because, again, if you've been here, you know this, but if you haven't been with us, uh, it's been very focused on our attitudes and our actions towards other people. Now, when we hear sanctification, we often focus on uh, the vertical element of it all. The, the vertical, it's between me and God. That's what we 
hear that word and we think, well, isn't that what it's all about? Uh, again, it has a lot to do with that, but it's not all only about that. Sanctification isn't just about how close we are to God in a vacuum. Uh, it's about what we do with that closeness and how we reflect that clo- closeness, because honestly, uh, how we reflect that closeness reveals whether or not we are actually close or not. Uh, that we can say we are close, but what we do with, what our, we, with our lives, how we live, is what actually reveals um, our connection to God. And, and if you're around here, you've heard me use this phrase a lot uh, in, in my messages, the horizontal element of it all, because this is really what sanctification is, is all about, or the end goal of sanctification, that we might understand the horizontal element of it all, that, that yes, there is a vertical element, our relationship with God, but there is a horizontal element that validates and authenticates what we confess uh, that we believe. I, I feel like we, we, we do the entire subject of sanctification at his service, and we cut ourselves short of actually being able to gauge our progress in our, and understand our mission as believers uh, by often talking about spirituality and sanctification exclusively with regards to our relationship with God. That's a very religious thing to do. Uh, and, and religion is so enticing uh, because we kind of get to make up the rules because nobody can see what's going on inside of us. And it's just us and God. And hey, I, you, know, you, you do you and you do me or I'll do me and you, you do you. But that's really what the Pharisees understood Judaism to be. Um, it was about what they did in their little box with God when nobody else was looking. And, and that was what they thought was the end or what was the, you know, the full you know, picture of, of religion. And that's why that the experiential church movement is so popular and that's why it's so deceiving and it enchants people because it gives a strong dose, uh, it gives a form of godliness, but it actually denies the power that comes along with knowing God. And you may say, well, isn't their power and experience, what we have learned and what we're going to continue to learn is that God's power is not in presentation. It's not in what you see and how you feel in a certain place. God's power is in practice as in how it changes our lives. The great deception of the 20th and 21st century is that closeness to God is measured by an experience that you and I have in a certain place around certain people at a certain time and a certain day. Uh, The the only biblical evidence for anything like that is, is tucked away in the Old Testament, but there's none of that in the New Testament. And the reason there's none of that in the New Testament is because it's always been the case that true closeness to God and true spirituality, true sanctification is measured in how Jesus has changed us and how that changes the way we live and how we live for him, specifically the way we encounter and interact with those around us. Now, people tell me all the time, well, I'm not really around a lot of people. You're around somebody. And and, and these basic Christian elements are supposed to impact how we function in our relationships, our closest relationships, from our spouses to our families, to our coworkers, to our neighbors. And it could be that God is nudging us uh, uh, to to branch out a little bit and and see how uh, we relate to other people, because that's how we begin to live out our faith and begin to show people what God has done and begin to allow God to work through us. And and it could be when we apply this at home, when we apply this in our very close relationships, that God will give us a greater and larger platform to, to, to interact with more people. But nonetheless, 
Sanctification and transformation, being closer to God, uh, this process is all about the horizontal realization of our vertical confession. You and I confess on Sundays, and, and I hope you pray and, and sing all week long, but in Sunday, on Sundays we gather in buildings like this and we confess through song and through prayer and through response, but it's what we do with what we confess that tells the true tale of our sanctification process. Now, I mentioned the Old Testament a little bit ago, uh, how it was more vertical, and it was, but there was a clear foreshadowing and a clear previewing of what was to come. Uh, the entire idea behind the book of Leviticus and the, the Levitical code and the sacrificial system is summarized in one verse, I'll show you from Leviticus 19, where God told Moses to speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for the Lord your God am or is holy. Holy. So the entire idea in the Old Testament of what it meant to be uh, sanctified was this, this verse in Leviticus that be holy as God is holy. And here's where they took that. They reduced that idea of being holy down to what you bring to God and what you look like before God. So in the Old Testament, the only, the concept of holiness was what you brought to God in a certain place on a certain day of the week in a certain time, what you brought to God and what you looked like when you were standing before God. But the New Testament comes along, Jesus comes along, Paul and the rest of the apostles come along and they take this concept of be holy and they redefine it as be whole. The Old Testament, it's me before God, how I look and what I bring. But the New Testament, you don't see that stuff because Jesus is holy in a way that will never be. He brought himself to God. He presented himself to God. So what does that mean for us? It means the commandment is be whole. You are in Christ. How does that affect you? It should sanctify you. It should set you apart. It should complete you. It should make you whole again or for the first time. In the New Testament, defines being whole as what God brings to us, right? Old Testament, what we bring to God, New Testament, God brings something to us. And what is that going to do in you? How does that affect you when you leave? God has brought you something. How do we live before him? Not what do we look like before him? How do we live before him? See the difference? See how that old way is so tempting to fall into because it kind of reduces it down to something time and place, but this is Christianity. This is what every one of us as Christians are, are called to. In fact, this is how Jesus pitched his movement from day one, from day one. He came to save people and bring people into God's kingdom and realize the kingdom through us, through them and, and through us ever since. And the, the way he presented his movement from the very, or the, on the very beginning or in the earliest of days uh, was through a very particular sermon that you and I refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. So I would love for you to turn back with me to Matthew 5, and I want to show you a few things that I think um, really brings out the true message of sanctification, uh, how Jesus brought it out for us in Matthew 5. And the reason why I think Matthew 5 is so important is this was Jesus' first major sermon. And scholars believe, and based on how it's kind of peppered across the other gospels, most believe that Jesus would repeat this sermon wherever he, whenever he would go to a new area or a new, new place. So he, Jesus preached this sermon for the first time uh, when uh, he was beginning his ministry in Galilee. But many believe that when he would go to a new area, he would repeat this message. Because in Luke, 
Luke 6, we hear him preach this same message, but it's a, in a very different location. And, and the, the writer actually makes it clear. Luke says, this was not on a mountain, this was in a valley, because he wants us to know this was the second or maybe multiple time, uh, another time that he preached this. So the idea is that when Jesus got a new audience, and when he, when he, when he was introducing, following him, and what it meant to be a Jesus follower, this was his go-to message. So maybe you have a go-to message you'd like to listen to. Uh, I'm sure, you know, as a preacher, I have things I like to preach more than others or feel more adequate to preach more than others. Uh, um, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' kind of go-to message if he, wanted to, if he wanted to introduce himself, introduce his movement. Um, and if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know that it's entirely focused on how people behave in God's kingdom. And there are actually some people that believe that nothing in the Sermon on the Mount is uh, applicable to, to Christians because it's so impossible that anybody could ever live like this. And, and it's really sad that there was, there's a whole group of theolo the, you know, theologians and, and, and Christians, not really in today's world, but in years past, that would look at this whole section of Matthew and say, well, that's some future that is going to happen sometime, but there's no way we can live like this. Even though Jesus said, you should live like this. And even though the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament take these very same principles and say, this is for us right now, not some distant future when nobody sins. So this is a big deal. And this is, again, the, the, the seeds for sanctification. And I've held off on showing this to us until the end of our time in Romans because I wanted us to kind of see that this was Jesus's word all along. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he preaches about how we might reflect God to other People, and, and think about the topics that are covered in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, very quick, early on, in the Beatitudes, which are really attitudes that Christians should have. Jesus says things like, be humble before others. He says, if you're, if you're one of my followers, you're going to be humble. Jesus, really? Hum humility? That's the first thing on the list? Yeah. Be humble. And, and then he says, you should be merciful. And then he says, you should be pure. So again, all these things relate to how we interact with other people, Right? That humility only matters whenever you begin to compare us to other people. That we're humble before others. We're merciful to others. We're pure towards others. As in our motives are pure and our intentions are pure. And that we don't do impure things with or towards other people. So again, this is all about how we interact with other people having been changed by Jesus. And to further punctuate that this is about how we live and how we represent God. He goes on and he says, your salt, your light, your refuge. Again, all these things are how we interact and how we impact others, right? Salt is what preserves the world around us. Light is what shines in the darkness. Refuge is what brings healing where there is discomfort or, or, or you know, brokenness. So if you go down the if you go down in Matthew 5, you, you see him command us how we should be in our attitudes and our emotions, what we should be like, salt, light, and refuge. And, and, and we're going to read some verses at the end of chapter 5. But if you go on through the, the whole chapter, you, you see him cover issues like anger and lust, which again, entirely about how we interact with other people, right? He says, if you're angry at somebody, don't even come to worship because you are wasting your words and your heart is not in the right place. Again, I didn't, not my words, Jesus' words, right? And then he says, you've heard Moses say that if you kill somebody, you're in danger of hell. But I say, if you hate somebody, it's just as bad. You've heard Moses say that if you commit adultery, that you're in danger of hell. I say, if you've thought about it, you're just as guilty. So again, what's he getting down to? How we see other people reflects our intentions with them. And you say, well, I, I, didn't really, I, I wasn't going to hurt them or I wasn't going to do anything with them. But you thought about it and that reveals your heart is not in the right place as you see other people. 
that reveals that your motive isn't right with the other people and you'll never be able to represent God to them if you look at them as somebody you can use or someone you can abuse, right? Again, this is, this is why some people back way back said, oh, this isn't for us. This is for some way in the future. This is for some kingdom world in the future. Jesus said, no, this is for you. This is for us. He deals with relational covenants like marriage and, and contracts that you make with your coworkers or with your you know, neighbors. And he says, hey, it matters what you say. And if you say, if you say yes to somebody, you better not say no the next day I'm behind their back because it matters how you treat each other. And it matters how you interact with each other. And then at the end of the chapter, Matthew 5, 43 through 48, he kind of drops this megaton on, and he kind of summarizes why he's been, you know, why he gave us all these little bit of, uh, uh, these other little sermons ahead of time. He says in verse 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And the Old Testament doesn't say hate your enemy, but it kind of just leaves the door open. You gotta love your neighbor, but that's only the people that you're on good terms with. But your enemy, hey, do whatever you want to with them. I mean, you know, burn their field down if you want to and you know, won't get in trouble for it. Hate your enemy, go ahead, hate them all you want to. That, you know, they don't owe them anything. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I love how Jesus never leaves any, any category untouched, right? That you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So why should we treat the unjust and the evil any differently than we treat the good and the just? He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He said, what, why? that doesn't make you distinct. That doesn't make you different. What is that gonna, how is that gonna be light and salt and refuge if you're just acting like the rest of the world? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than the others do? Don't even the tax collectors do, the, do so? And then he drops this major, major statement. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as, just as, say that with me, just as, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, what does that mean? Now, be perfect towards one another. Because what has this whole chapter been about? How you treat other people. Be perfect towards one another, just as your heavenly father is perfect towards you. That's the idea here. Again, this entire chapter is about our interactions with other people. So be whole, be sanctified, be transformed by the power of God, be perfect towards one another. Jesus is the perfection of God. We have no arguments about that, right? He's the perfection of God on display in action, in motion. And it's all understood in the way he lived for others. And Jesus said, if you wanna be whole, if you wanna be complete, if you want to be perfect, be like me, not me, Jesus. He says, be like me. And did you know that when Jesus, the night before Jesus died, you know what he was totally focused on in his prayer? You've heard this before, but let's turn over to John 17 and hear it again. The night that Jesus was going to be arrested, would be arrested, in John 17, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed about God glorifying himself through the work that Jesus was about to do. But he gets to the end of the, the, of the prayer and he starts praying for his disciples. 
And you've heard him, you've heard some of this before and you've heard all of it in different different ways before, but I wanna hear it in in a complete thought. In John 17, verse 17, we're jumping in midstream. He says, he prays for his disciples. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we just read some of God's word, right? Matthew 5, that's the, Jesus's backbone, his cornerstone. That's his message. Sanctify them, make them whole, make them perfect, make them complete. And then he says, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them. So we get this idea that he wants us to be complete so that we might be on mission, so that we might be the people of God that he wants us to be, build the children of God. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So what was Jesus about to do the night that he was praying this prayer? He was gonna die for us, right? And and with a whole other sermon, how he acts on trial when he's before Pilate and he's dealing with his enemies. You know what he did. You know what he didn't do as well. And it reflects that Sermon on the Mount so perfectly, doesn't it? Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, as in I'm not just praying for Peter and John and James and, and, and the gang. I'm praying for those that will come who will believe in me through their words. So he's praying for you and me, right? Jesus prayed for you the night that he was arrested. That they may, that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us as that the world may believe that you sent me. So what's he praying for? That we might be one as in all on the same page, we might be complete, full. But there's also this very important theme that I wanna draw our attention to. Sanctified individuals. Striving to function as a sanctified body equals unity. Unity. There will be no unity in the body if the members of the body are not being sanctified and living sanctified lives. And I bring all that up because back in Romans 12, if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard this, but I want to read it again. Back in Romans 12, verse three through five, what does Paul take the conversation to? As he just called us to be transformed, be sanctified. He just called us to present our bodies before God. What does he go, what does he immediately focus on? He says in verse three, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in the body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. And then he goes off from that point, rest of chapter 12, 13 and 14, and he preaches all about how we interact with others, how that reflects our sanctification and transformation process. And you know, we don't want to do Romans 12 again. That was rough. That was hard, right? Well, we need to hear it again because it's all about lifting other people up above ourselves. Romans 13 is all about how we deal in society and how we deal with our politics of it all and the civility of it all reflects how we, you know, interact with how we interact with other people. That all functions, that all factors in. Romans 14 was all about, uh, you know, being willing to, to, to not eat certain things and not do certain things because we're considering those around us and how it might affect them. So I hope that we've all taken to heart what we've learned these last few chapters regarding sanctification. And I wanted to spend a little bit up front tonight making it even more clear that it's not just an isolated lesson in a single book. This is the cohesive message of the whole Bible. 
This is what I think churches probably should spend 90% of their time talking about to, to Christians, not obviously to people that are not, in, not saved. They need to hear the gospel. But I think Christians need to talk about this more than anything. And we've got a taste of it from just one book, and I've showed you some other parts of the Bible. Now more than ever, it, it's clear to us we're accountable in the natural next step for us to take, having been justified, having been united to Christ is to understand the sanctification process. And Romans 12 through 14 has made it clear that that involves becoming like Jesus. And the entire reference point for what Jesus is like is how he treated others, how he treats us. And those words that Jesus spoke on the ser- spoke at the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect towards one another, just as your heavenly father has been and will always be perfect towards you. That's a heavy statement, isn't it? Be perfect toward. What is it that if you forgive those that forgive you, but I want you to forgive those that will never forgive you. What is it that you love your neighbor? I want you to love the one that you cannot find anything in you naturally love. I want you to control your anger. I want you to control your lust. I want you to control the way you talk to one another and react with one another because all that reflects your heart. And if you have received the perfect love of God, then that perfect love should go out of you to other people. Let me just say this, church. Y'all know me. As much as I love every detail of the Bible, as much as I love preaching, I could preach the sermons on Melchizedek and all the neat things about that guy. Uh, As much as I could write and preach about the last days and, 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 and prophecy for years, as enthused as I am about Greek and Hebrew and getting into the, the nitty-gritty of the text, as geeked out as I get about the history and the numerology and the facts of it all, I have to admit that, and, and I think as a pastor, that every pastor, but as a pastor who wants to lead their church into being the body of Christ to its fullest extent, what matters most, the means to an end of what we do, what every message should always take every Christian to, is How does this reveal Jesus and what must we do with him in our daily lives? That's what it's all about. Others might disagree with me and that's their right. But as far as I see it, my goal and and the church's goal isn't just to make us smart about the Bible and Jesus, but to to make us servants of Jesus and his body. Y'all have heard me say this before. I would love to get to heaven and there be a test. Now, I'm not bragging because, I mean, I've read the Bible a lot. It's not what I have, not what I've done. I just read it a lot. I know a lot about it, right? I'd love for, for, I'd love for there to be a test when we get to heaven. There's not going to be a test, right? There's not. We're not going to, oh, I'm smarter than you or you're smarter than me. And did you know? And did I know? We were doing that trivia before church. You know, maybe you got all of them right. I hope you did. And if you do know all that stuff, it'll apply all that stuff. It'll make you a better Christian. But the knowledge in and of itself, all that'll do is puff us up a little bit. But the goal of the Bible, the goal of the church is to make us servants. Again, Sermon on the Mount, the end of that, the end of the sermon, Jesus makes this just convicting statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everybody who says, oh, Lord, I mean, you know what I know and you know what I've done. I mean, hey, look at me. Jesus said, that's not, what, that's not impressive at all to God. The truly smart person 
is not about, it's not about what they know, it's what they do. He says in the very couple of verses later, who, is, who then is a wise man? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, it will be like a wise man. So knowledge to God is what we do, not what we know. In that very same passage, Jesus says, on that day, many, this, this scares me to death as a pastor, not because of me, but because of what I, the people that I talk to in my accountability. Jesus says, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not know this? And did we not show it in, in, in the way we worshiped? And all? Jesus says, many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Scares me to death as a pastor. Because God forbid I mislead people and not preach his truth. And deceive people into thinking that, just, that, that knowing Jesus and following Jesus is based on some religion or some routine. My job is to point people to Jesus and say, look at what he did and look at what he's doing and look at where he's going and follow him. What did Jesus say? Follow me. My job is to say, follow that guy. Follow him. He died and rose again that you might come to life, that you might understand what he did for you and how that can change how you live and how that impacts what you do for everybody else. Not just those that we want to serve, but those that we would rather not serve. The ones that we find reasons to not serve, the one that we find difficult to serve. And if there's ever been a time in the world where serving is unpopular, it's today. And Christians, we have so many reasons to not serve people and to not bear with people. Because we've all got different political ideas and we look at people and say, well, if they just had their change their minds they'd be different and I could love them and we've got social commitments that makes it a little bit you know inconvenient and we've got theological beliefs that we think I don't know if I can serve that person I mean hey they should know better because I know better do you not know what it says I know what it says Jesus knew what it said more than anybody and he still did it we who know Jesus may wonder why should we submit ourselves to those who haven't yet submitted or maybe never will submit to what we believe when they're an offense or inconvenience to our beliefs and our lifestyles, why should we serve people like that? Why should we make it all about how we treat other people? I mean, is that really what it's about? It's okay to ask that question. Even after hearing Jesus say all this stuff, it's okay to ask that question. But what we're going to go for the next few minutes in closing is we're going to hear Romans 15 summarize all this up for us. And Romans 15 is probably a more essential read than I gave it credit for a while back when I was preparing all this because it gives us yet another powerful word and a summary statement of what it really means to be sanctified, what it means to be mature in Christ. Romans 15, one through three. We're gonna have to read this about three times for, to, to get it because it's, it's not deep. It's just ugh, a little bit <laughs> convicting. When we then who are strong all to bear with the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to his or her edification or building up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As in those that reproached God, their reproach fell on Jesus. Let's read that again. 
We then who are strong, who have faith and are mature and are being transformed and are being sanctified. People that say, I'm sanctified. Well, this is the litmus test. Not what you know, but what you do. We who are strong ought to bear with the infirmities, scruples, weaknesses, kind of redundant, but weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. For even Christ should not please himself as is written, or verse two, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to his edification. For even Christ should not please himself as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Nobody, that's not, that's not none of our life verses. I'm gonna go ahead and take out, step out on a limb and say, we don't quote this every morning and say, it's gonna be a good day. <laughs> Maybe you do. And if you're in the weak category, you're glad somebody does. Verse 15, verse one, King James, New King James uses the word alt. But this is not a mere suggestion. The Greek word behind that word alt is better translated obligation. We've, read, we've talked a lot before in the Bible when Jesus said, I must, Peter says, we must. That's the word alt, we alt to. And it's not, well, I should do that or maybe I will do that. It's an obligation Literally, the word means we owe them. Well, I don't owe them anything. Well, this is Paul saying, we are obligated. We who are strong are obligated to bear with, and this word infirmities means weaknesses or sicknesses, spiritually or soul-wise, infirmities, sinfulness, failures, shortcomings. We are to bear with the shortcomings of the weak. Now, now, if you were to observe most Christians, you would think this verse says, we who are strong have an option to bear with the weak. But that's not what the text says, is it? We have an obligation, not just to bear with the weak, but bear the burdens of the weak. Now, the, the phrase bear burdens literally means to carry something on your back, to carry something on your back. Burden isn't always a negative word. In, 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 in this case, it refers to weaknesses of people, yes, but it also refers to the calling of Christ on everyone. So we are to help bear burdens of those who are weak and help them learn Jesus because we seek to please our neighbor rather than please ourselves. Is that that's what the text says? Weak here does not mean, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm weak physically. It means they're weak in their faith or maybe they have no faith at all. The reason why they're living like they're living is because they don't have the faith that you have. They're not strong. They're not mature. They're not transformed. They, they ought to get that way. Well, here's Paul is saying, here's how you help them get that way. I mean, is that not a, a power, I mean, convicting, powerful, whatever you want to say, that we are not here to please ourselves, but we are here to please our neighbor? For his good. Pleasing our neighbor rather than pleasing ourselves. Who are we, who are we, are we mimicking? Jesus, right? The best way to teach someone about Jesus is to show them Jesus. This is what Paul's saying. You see some weak people around you, people that you think are, have some infirmities, some weaknesses, some shortcomings, some immorality. The best way to teach them about Jesus is to show them Jesus. Those who are weak are in prime position to be shown Jesus by those who are strong. 
Church, I don't care what has appeared to bring revival and bring growth in the former ages. This is how we still reach an unreached world. What's the one complaint we have most about the world? There are so many people who just don't seem to care about God like we do. There are so many people that are not interested by every definition of the word. They are weak in their faith or they do not have any faith. They're weaker than weak. But what does this passage tell us that we must do? We are obligated to bear with and bear for. So if we really care about them, this is convicting. If we really care about them, we will bear with them. You know what bear with means? It means put up with. Remember when Jesus said, how long am I going to put up with y'all? He was talking to his disciples because they were asking all kinds of crazy questions. They didn't want to heal that kid and they wanted to, you know, send him away. He said, how long am I going to have to put up with y'all? Well, he put up with them to the cross, right? And he still puts up with us. Bear with and bear for, as in you see them lacking something, well, go help them. Go believe for them. And again, that doesn't register for them, but it can help show them something. How strong is this commandment? Let each of us please our neighbor for his good. I mean, how, how selfless is that? I mean, who do, you want to, who do you wake up every day wanting to please you? Of course, right? You look in the mirror and say, I want to have a good day, and I want to make sure I have a good day by pleasing me. For my good. Paul says we are going to win them. We're going to win their favor by serving them. Now church, if we want revival and we want people to get saved, this is the pathway that we should be led down. We can't complain about the weaknesses and infirmities of the world if we're not willing to bear with them and bear for them. And there's plenty to bear with and there's plenty to bear for, isn't there? So you know what this passage is meant to do besides just teach us and instruct us? It's meant to bring us to repentance and stir our hearts that we might would cry out to God and say, God, sanctify us to make us perfect like our Father in heaven has been perfect to us, perfect to others. That's what the goal of this passage is. Do you not think Paul is grinning from ear to ear when he writes this? Nobody naturally wants to do this, but supernaturally, this should be our desire. This should be our want. The word strong, this this gets people that are really spiritual. The word strong is the word dunamai, which is the word that you hear in Acts, dynamite, the power of God. The word strong there is those who have the power of God. This is what you're to do with it. Serve those that are weak. We talked about the power of God earlier and what it means to have the power of God. God's power flows through us to empower those around us. Say, well, Justin, I don't know about that. You know, is that condoning them? Or how, does, how do I deal with people that are different than me? The best example I can give you is what verse three says. For even Christ did not please himself as it is written. The reproaches of those who reproached God fell on him. John 19 tells us that he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull. And there they crucified him. So what did Jesus do? He bore our cross and he was crucified for us. Vertically, he died in our place, but horizontally, he reached his arms out for everybody. 
And listen, when we truly understand what Jesus bore for us, what, suf- what Jesus suffered for us, we will never complain. And, and I think this is a big statement, but I think it's true. When we really get our minds and hearts around what Jesus did for us, we will never complain. We will never say it's inconvenient to symbolically bear the burdens of somebody else. Because as aggravated as they make you, as offended as they may be to you, offensive as they may be to you, as unbiblical as what they do may be to you, and how I don't know how I can do with this, let me just say this, and I don't think this is controversial. Nothing we have to put up with or bear for someone is ever going to compare to what Jesus bore for all of us. Do you not know, think it was offensive for Jesus to have to bear our sins? You don't think Jesus was repulsed by what he had to become on the cross, right? He became our sin. Who knew no sin? And and I really think if we ever really get a full glimpse of what Jesus did for us, we will, nothing we ever put up with or bear for for somebody is ever going to compare to what Jesus bore for us. If I'm weak, if I'm weak, if I've got an area of weakness, it may, it may be a small thing, it may be an egregious thing, it may be an abomination, according to some verses. If I'm weak and you're strong and you help me out, that doesn't guarantee that I change. But if you help me out, the weight you have to bear, the frustration you might suffer, the time you spend, none of that's ever going to compare to what Jesus did for all of us, is it? But you know what it's going to do for you? It's going to help you realize how much Jesus loves you. It's going to help you realize how much Jesus loves that sinner that you initially thought you shouldn't deal with. Oh, I know our excuses. I'm too busy. They should straighten up on their own. They know better. If I do that, am I condoning sin? If I help them, am I condoning their sin? I can't do that. People might talk about me and say that I'm not holy enough. These are excuses that don't hold any water for what Jesus did for us, do they? What Jesus took your sin, and when he took your sin and my sin, he wasn't condoning that sin. He was saving us. So when we bear those, bear for those that are weak and bear with those that are weak, we are patiently serving them and showing them that Jesus is patient as well. We are doing for them the, in the smallest of ways what Jesus did. There are no excuses to opt out of this. Jesus made no excuses against us. And honestly, I, I got to say it, excuses come from an elevated view of self. When we get out of touch with what Jesus has done for us, we make excuses. And listen, a lot of holy people in church will say, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't help them. They're, they, they, they're too far gone. Well, they're not weak. They're, they're reproached or, they're, or they're, they're, they're depraved. You know, don't mess with them. That's come from a place that forgets what Jesus did. And, and listen, I've made those excuses. I'm not picking on anybody. I've done that. But does Romans fit? Do these verses give an out? I don't think so. Christian, let me say this, as the flesh pulls at us, as Satan tries to deceive us, because if anything, this reveals to me how much sin still has a hold on me. If I spend adequate time understanding what Jesus did for me and worshiping him for it, I will find no greater pleasure than following Jesus' example and serving others. I really believe that. And I'm not there. I'm not always there. Let me just... But if I spend my time worshiping Jesus then I will find no greater pleasure than doing what these verses say that I must do. I'll rejoice at the opportunity because my goal will be to see Jesus spread to more and more. Even if it doesn't register with them, we're still doing it for Jesus because of Jesus. And verse four gives us a word of encouragement, reminding us all the Bible points us in this direction. 
that for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we would, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope, that we might patiently learn this is the way we should walk. And listen to verses five through seven in closing. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the Lord, the God and, your, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, welcome one another, serve one another, just as, there it is again, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So why do we need endurance? Why do we need encouragement? Because serving others can be discouraging, can be tiresome, can be frustrating, can be demoralizing. But we must remember, we aren't doing it just for them. We're doing it for Jesus. We're doing it to do our part to build up the unity that Christ prayed for. So when we lift up our voice to God, it's a voice of obedience. When we gather to worship, we're supposed to bring God a report of what we've done. Not to brag, but to report and to glorify God over what he's allowed us to do. When you read the book of Acts, you see these kind of verses all the time. When they gathered together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he would do things. They weren't bragging about what they did. They were saying, wow, look at what God did through us and with us. He has done this because they were willing to do what these verses command. Let me ask you, are we glorifying God from a place of participation? from a place of sanctification. I mean, verses, these are some of the hardest verses to preach because they're the hardest verses to live, but we should write down chapter 15, one through three on a note card, memorize it, make it your phone background, whatever you gotta do. This is our commandment as the people of God, as a church, as a people in the world every day. We must, just as, just as Christ has done for us, we must do for others. Why? For God's glory and for their good. What does it say, verse two? Let us please our neighbor for his good. That doesn't mean give them what they want. It means give them what God has given you. Love, forgiveness, mercy. Why are we doing it for God's glory, for their good, for, the, for our completion, for our growth? The more we do it, the more we realize that we're doing it for Jesus. The more the goalposts move for our own joy and our own peace, that is our goal. If we want true Christian joy and peace, we will allow God's power to fill us and overflow through us for his glory and the good of everyone. If we wanna be full and mature and grow in Christ, this is the only pathway for us to pursue. What do you know is important, but what you do with what you know is what counts in eternity. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time before your word. Lord, I'm grateful that your word does not uh, hold back and, and we don't open the Bible to find lofty, uh, vague statements and commandments. We find very clear and, and very black and white and very easy to understand commandments. Lord, as we have been served by Christ and changed by Christ, we are called to take those same virtues to the world and love and serve those around us. That we would not live for ourselves, but live for those around us and for their good, to build them up and to hopefully bring them to salvation, to restore that one that's fallen. Lord, would you show us the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that comes from this pathway, this lifestyle. Make us whole, make us complete, make us perfect 
towards others as you are always perfect towards us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.